You can go ahead and open your Bibles if you want to Philippians 4. We're going to be closing out this this book today. Um, Verses 10 to 23. This sermon series that we're closing this morning was entitled, or is entitled, Audacious Joy. And it has been such an edifying series for me and my family, and I assume our church as a whole. I am grateful for the way Adam and John have rightly handled the word of God throughout this series. Oftentimes, our flesh tells us that the the word of God is, is not completely sufficient. We fall into belief that scripture needs to be spruced up or made more relevant, to make it more entertaining. We, we think we need provocative series titles or, or real-world advice. At Capshaw, we preach through the Word of God, and we do our best to explain what it means. The Word of God being perfect is far better at providing all the answers than we. Here we rely solely on the work of Christ and not upon the efforts of man. That is why at Capshaw you will not hear sermons on 10 steps to a happy marriage or five secrets of financial security. You are going to hear sermons where the preaching elder says, here's what the word of God tells us. So as we preach through the word, you'll find that a maturing relationship with God does strengthen a marriage. Or a maturing relationship with God does provide better direction for one's life. But our focus is not primarily upon human happiness. But rather our focus is upon the glory and the work of Jesus Christ. So a bit of a, um, a, bit of a tease going forward. I was very excited when John asked me to preach this passage. Because it contains one of, if not the most, incorrectly interpreted passages in our Bible. So pay attention. That's coming up in just a little while. But let's read our scripture today. It's kind of wordy. So I'm going to read the whole thing and then we'll kind of break it down. We'll take parts of it, that kind of thing. Philippians 4, verses 10 through 23. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. 
the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. So, contentment is something that the saved as well as the lost seek. We, we all desire to be content. Our fallen world has succumbed to sin. And as a consequence, we live lives beset with problems and difficulties, death, fear, pain, and overwhelming cynicism. Webster defines contentment as freedom from worry. We can then safely deduce that since our world is fallen to sin and its destructive consequences, complete freedom from worry and anxiety in this world is impossible. Through Christ, we find contentment in this world that is but a shadow of the perfect contentment we will celebrate when spending eternity with our God. Believers are given access to an earthly and an eternal contentment that the secular world will never know. Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs writes, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. God's word frequently mentions the contentment of the believer and where that contentment is to be found. Hebrews 13.5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 1 Timothy 6.8, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities for the sake of Christ because he believes, as he says in 1 Timothy 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul, as he seemingly did everywhere he ventured, had a special relationship with the people of Philippi. Years earlier, he had helped plant a church there, a church that at one time was Paul's sole source of financial support. At the time of his writing, the grateful people of the Philippian church had sent him another generous gift. And the portion of scripture that we're covering today is Paul's heartfelt thank you letter to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And from this gracious thank you letter, we can extract so much about God's grace and his desire for his people. So let's take a moment to set the scene here because I think that gives the reader exponentially more insight into the satisfying grace of God. So according to the book of Acts, Paul was essentially under house arrest, most likely in like a, a one-room type of small apartment. He was under the constant surveillance of Roman soldiers. And in the United States, if you're incarcerated, you're provided with the basic necessities of life, right? Food and clothes. But prisoners of, of Paul's day, they, they were not. If they were to eat, for instance, it would only be through the generosity of friends or, or churches. For Paul, there was the occasional visitor 
But most of his contact with the churches he loved was through the writing and receiving of letters. He was also awaiting trial before Nero. Now, Nero was a man with such distaste for Christians that he would burn them as lanterns to illuminate his parties. F.B. Meyer writes of this particular season of Paul's life saying, He was deprived of every comfort and cast as a lonely man on the shores of the great strange metropolis with every movement of his hand clanking a fetter and nothing before him but the lion's mouth or the sword. One might think that anyone facing the hardships of Paul would be consumed by bitterness and self-pity. Instead, we find a Christ follower strengthened through the Holy Spirit, confident in God's sovereignty. The contentment of Paul stands in direct contrast to our discontented culture. To put it bluntly, the sinful flesh of humanity, left to its own predilection, is never, ever satisfied or content. So, audacious joy through true contentment. Our sermon points today will be three observations of one that is finding his or her contentment in God. So our first point this morning, generosity is a symptom of one finding his or her contentment in Christ. Contentment, Scripture tells us, is a learned blessing. Twice within this passage, Paul declares that he has learned to be content. People and communities within the Greco-Roman world regularly gave to and received from one another. And this would have certainly been true In the day of the church at Philippi. And I think we see evidence of that throughout this passage. Verse 10 shows us that the church had for some time desired to bless their pastor and friend. They were, however, for whatever reason, we don't find out. They were unable to do so. It seems that just as this imprisonment provided Paul the time and opportunity to write this epistle that is now part of our canon, the imprisonment of Paul also provided his brothers and sisters in Christ living in Philippi with the timing and the opportunity to financially bless and love on their friend. And instances like this always remind me of Genesis 50, where in verse 20, Joseph is quoted, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And I'm sure that many viewed the arrest and imprisonment of Paul as a tragedy, but God was working within these circumstances to bring glory to himself. You can always... Tell through reading this letter that Paul's love is is not contingent upon what the people of Philippi can do for him. He is actually showing hesitation and asking for anything as we read in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. But these are Christ followers. They're content in their Savior and they cannot help but to be generous. Verses 14 and 15. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. 
And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership in giving and receiving except only you. This relationship was interesting in that Philippi was a small city in Macedonia. There were several other much more impressive imperial cities throughout this region. But none of them, even the wealthy Thessalonica, displayed the support and generosity of Philippi. Verse 14, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. What what we got here is their generosity has created a partnership between Paul and the people of Philippi. They actually were able to participate in Paul's suffering for Christ in this world. If you flip over, in my Bible, it's just one page. If you flip over to Colossians 1, um, verses 24 and 25. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So through their generosity, they were able to not only assist, but they are able to participate with Paul. A while back, a few years ago, I was serving at at another church. I like you guys much better. I'm just kidding. I I love them very much too, but I do love it here. I want to be here forever. Hope they bury me out back. But um, not tomorrow. I mean, way down the road. I'm off topic already. Where am I? Uh, I told my mother I wouldn't do that. Sorry, mom. All right. A while back, I was serving at another church, and I became very close with an older man within our congregation. This guy was at every event. He was at every meeting. He was at every Bible study. And you've you've heard the saying, he was every time we turned the lights on or every time we opened the doors at this church, this was that guy. He had a large booming voice. He was highly intelligent. And he always sought out stimulating conversation or debate. And one day we were talking about him an upcoming sermon, and he abruptly interrupted me. And he said, I'm sorry, brother, but I will not listen to you or any pastor talk about money or giving. And I I was shocked because we really weren't talking about tithing. We were just talking about generosity. He then went on to proudly proclaim boastfully, that in his 65 years of life, he had never given money to his home church. He said something along the lines of, I've never given a dime to the church, and the church is still standing, so they do not need my money, and they're not getting my money. He then went went on to tell me that this is how his father had raised him, and he wasn't about to listen to anyone who contradicted his daddy. Why did I tell this story? I told you so you would have some background information when I tell you that this man was without a doubt one of the most miserable human beings I've ever met in my 46 years of life. He was surrounded by loving believers. 
He was surrounded by a warm church. He was surrounded by his own family members that also attended this same church. Amidst all of this, this gentleman never found any joy, no contentment. He was secure financially. He had been blessed with much in the way of material wealth, yet he was negative, pessimistic, and quite frankly, he was a challenge to like. He was convinced that everyone, the church included, was after his wealth. That it was his duty to defend his hoard. He felt that the needy, the poor, and even the church were greedy beggars seeking what he had rightfully earned. He sought contentment through the defense of his property, and he never, ever found it. Chasing any contentment that does not come fully from Jesus Christ. It's like, it's like chasing a mirage to satisfy a thirst that is never to be quenched. There was no joy for him. Because of that, there was no contentment. Because of that, there was no generosity. Now please, right here, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying... Please give and God will make you happy. You know, the guys on TV, so will see. And the Lord Jesus will give you breakthrough in your life. Not that. I'm not saying that. That's, that's a prosperity gospel, which is um, a heresy. We'll be talking about that a little bit later. But we must ask ourselves, where are we looking for contentment? If you are one that is perpetually discontent, you may need to ask yourself, am I looking solely to the cross of Calvary for contentment? Or am I dividing my attention between Christ and an array of idols? If any of you have ever served short-term or long-term missions, and I know many of you have, um, in third world countries, this next part will really resonate with you. Each year, Pastor B, that's Brandon for the rest of you, each year, Pastor Brandon and I, or at least each normal non-global pandemic here. Anyway, we take a team to Tegucigalpa, Honduras. We serve in the Point Honduras ministry, providing relief to pastors, teachers, and even kitchen workers that minister to these communities. We are also able to encourage and pour into the young pastors and future pastors of the Point Church Plants. These pastors and leaders who are trained well, and that's made in possible in part due to your generosity. But anyway, these pastors are trained very well. These leaders do a great job of proclaiming joy and contentment through Christ, regardless of circumstance. That teaching and the work of the Holy Spirit through that teaching is undeniable. When you meet the families in the communities of San Juan, Villanueva, and 21 de Febrero. So we take a team there each year to worship and serve with our favorite catrachos and catrachas. That's what the Honduran people call themselves. Um, they don't like Honduran, by the way. Anyway, without fail, each year, our team members comment, these people are so joyful. They are so content. They are so giving. And they have nothing. And that reveals something 
about us. Because we as Americans, we tend to think that happiness and contentment come from the acquiring of things and the removal of problems. However, the people of Point Honduras, by stark contrast, have fewer things and more problems than we could ever imagine. Yet they find joy and contentment in Christ. I want to introduce you to a boy there. His name is Rostin. That's him. That picture is really not necessary to the illustration I'm about to give. It's just every time I put these beautiful brown faces on the screen, you guys sponsor more kids. So that's little Rostin. Emotional manipulation complete. Rostin is an 11-year-old boy living in the Feb 21 neighborhood of Tegucigalpa. One of our church members, that's her on the left, Elise Yarborough, is his sponsor, which means that she pays for his biblical education and for him one meal a day. Each year, on our last day, we stop by certain homes to drop off a month's worth of provisions, food and hygiene products, etc., So Elise, as well as the rest of us, were thrilled to stop by Roston's family home that day. A home that consisted of three sheets of plywood and a piece of sheet metal. The family received us with so much love and warmth. We had a lovely time together. And as we got ready to leave, Roston shouted, wait! And he runs out of the room. He runs outside, he comes back in a few moments, and he's got a plate of mangoes. And we had a small group, but he gave one and made sure each member of our tiny group had a mango. I knew from knowing his pastors that he may have just given us his dinner. Most of these children are lucky to get a tortilla and a piece of fruit daily. Yet Rawson was so happy to give to us. He didn't want anything in return. He didn't have pause because of how he thought we might use the mangoes after he gave them to us. Rather, he was so happy and content that he gave freely, sacrificially, and joyfully. And that is how Jesus Christ transforms us. A focus on Christ removes our selfishness and replaces it with joyful generosity. And you see this type of maturity and transformation with Paul and the Philippians. They gave to each other selflessly. Our second point this morning. Believers are to be content within God's sovereignty and provision. Throughout each of these sermon points, it is imperative that we continually ask ourselves, where are we looking to find contentment? Do we fall into the trap of looking at what others have and saying, if I only had what they have, I'll be content? Do we we look at social media and think, to be content, I need that kind of life. I need that kind of marriage. I need that kind of family. If I could just have that, I promise I would be content. 
What about politics? How many people right now are miserably obsessed with the outcome of our presidential election? I've watched election results from other years and we see people screaming and mourning in the streets and we see tantrums of rioters dissatisfied with their government. And I am not saying that we shouldn't care. As Christian citizens of this nation, we have every right to be concerned. But we must search our hearts. Is our contentment tied up in our God or in our love of country? If it is in our love of country, we will only find dissatisfaction and frustration. God the Father was, is, and always will be on the throne, and that must bring us peace that surpasses the fear and uncertainty of contemporary politics. The United States of America is not a biblical doctrine. The sovereignty of God is. God's sovereignty nourishes our contentment. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, or as Adam calls him, the Spurge. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God rests his head at night, giving perfect peace. So we continue, verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then we go with the most misunderstood verse in all of Scripture. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Sometimes you'll hear the pronoun filled in. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you watch um, any sporting event long enough, you'll see someone misappropriate this verse. We narsegete ourselves into the text. We make this text a, a proclamation of our greatness. So my former drummer from back in my rock band days is now a tattoo artist in Seattle, Washington. And I spoke with him Earlier this week, and I thought to ask him, Preston, what is the one scripture passage you tattoo the most? And his answer came quickly. He said, without a doubt, Philippians 4.13 is among the most requested. And people by the thousands walk around with this verse permanently etched upon their skin, often with no true understanding of the full beauty of this passage. That's not a picture of me at the beach. That is a picture of John Bones Jones. John Bones Jones, if you're not a mixed martial arts addict like I am, John Bones Jones is the undefeated UFC light heavyweight champion of the world. He is universally recognized as the GOAT of MMA. If you or over a certain demographic, that means greatest of all time, G-O-A-T. The GOAT of MMA. He is quite possibly the most dangerous human creature walking planet Earth. And here on him, all right there on his chest, we see this verse. I can do all things through Christ 
who strengthens me. Now, if this verse meant that because of Jesus, John Jones would become an undefeated champion, there's a major problem with that interpretation. The man he happened to fight on this particular night was also a Christ follower that also believed he could do all things through Christ who strengthened him. So assured victory cannot be assured for both men. Thus, the interpretation we're dealing with is heretical. And I'm not picking on him. As a matter of fact, I'd appreciate it if you never told him anything about this. But um, I'm just using this pick to show how we sinfully view this verse as a proclamation of our abilities and potential rather than our dependence upon Jesus. A pastor recently, I, I, I use the term pastor loosely, I won't name his name. Let's just say he's a heretical pastor of the largest evangelical church in the country. Um, he recently said of Philippians 4.13, I'm not going to put it on the screen because it's, it's rubbish. Most people tend to magnify their limitations. They focus on their shortcomings. But scripture makes it plain. All things are possible to those who believe. That's right. It's possible to see your dreams fulfilled. It's possible to overcome that obstacle. It's possible to climb to new heights. It is possible to embrace your destiny. You may, you may not know how it will take place. You may not have a plan. But all you have to know is that God said, you can. You can. End quote. That's hard to do with straight face. <laughs> That's absolute nonsense, my friends. Heretics like this pastor prey upon the vanity and ignorance of immature believers, of which we've all been. This verse is not about getting that job promotion or finding your soulmate, having a better sex life with your spouse or making money. This verse, nor any other verse for that matter, is about you and you following your dreams Scripture is not about you, it's not about me, it is about Jesus Christ. To apply a self-centered reading to this passage is to put the wrong emphasis on the wrong syllable. Here, Paul lists, what's Paul's doing? He's in prison now, he's listing his challenging circumstances, writing from prison. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty in hunger, abundance, and need. He says, I have learned the secret. What is the secret? The secret is, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is not encouraging the Philippians to dream bigger dreams, to chase their passion, or to go out and conquer the world. Rather, he is imploring them to rest in the peace and contentment of the one who has conquered all. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff writes, Philippians 4, 13 is not really about who has the strength to play to the best of their abilities in a sporting contest. This verse is about having strength to be content when we are facing those moments in life when physical resources are minimal. 
we are assured God will provide all that we need. And that renders one's hardships powerless. God is not a divine sugar daddy eager to give us earthly trappings. The Bible teaches that God is our sustainer when life seems unsustainable. And that's really good news. And it contains a hope far greater than earning a promotion at work or your team winning the Super Bowl. As fleshly creatures, we desire to make ourselves the focal point. We want to see ourselves as the hero. We read this scripture and we put the focus on I, what I can do, rather than celebrating the provision of Christ. We look to him for fulfillment and not to others. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, As medicine works disease out of the body, so contentment works trouble out of the heart. Holy contentment keeps the heart from fainting. Contentment is the golden shield which beats back all discouragements. The tenth commandment instructs us, you shall not covet. We are to be at peace with our provision. Focus on Christ is where we find our contentment. There we are satisfied with what we have, never looking to others with bitterness or envy. Rather, we are pleased and at peace with what God has given us. We are encouraged and strengthened. In other words, contentment is the antithesis of covetousness. Our third point this morning. A content person is focused on the well-being of others. Paul always underscores concern for others. Those who live only for themselves will fail to find ultimate contentment because self-serving contentment only exists within perfect circumstance. Only those who place the needs of others in higher priority than their own will find contentment. Paul prayed in verse 9 that his friend's love may abound more. Speaking of biblical love in another epistle, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 13, that love is unselfish. In reading Philippians 2, we see that had Christ been selfish, he would have never left heaven to sacrifice himself for a people worthy of hell. Furthermore, When Paul rejoices over the generosity of the Philippian believers, his elation is not found in the actual material benefit of the gift. He knows that God will provide. Paul instead finds happiness in the Philippians' cheerful obedience to God. In verse 17, he writes, Not that I seek the gift, but that I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. The gift not only blesses Paul, but it is an indication of a people finding joy and contentment in their God. Their generous concern with Paul's well-being is of spiritual benefit to them. Hebrews 13, 16 reads, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Likewise, Paul says in verse 18 that these gifts are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
Such a sacrificial act was an outward worship of God. And for that, Paul was grateful. In worshiping only God, we find contentment in his provision. A contentment that brings generosity, love, and concern for others. This is what Paul saw in his spiritual children. That is the reason for his rejoicing. John Calvin comments, The exercise of love which God enjoins upon us is not merely a benefit conferred upon man, but is also a spiritual and sacred service which is performed to God, and he is pleased with such sacrifices. So we see that their concern for others was bringing glory to Christ. We were created for this purpose. Everything within creation exists to glorify God. And we, as his people, remind ourselves that our reason for existence is not to achieve our goals or to find our fairy tale. It's not to serve ourselves. Our reason for living is to glorify God. How many problems and unfortunate circumstances could be avoided if we simply sought to glorify God? How much drama could be avoided in the church if all parties sought to glorify God? How many friendships would still be together had they not fallen to social media wars If we all sought to glorify God with our words, how many marriages would be saved if both spouses sought to glorify God in their union? The brilliant and and deeply missed R.C. Sproul once said, Nothing gives believers more joy than to see God glorified. That should give us audacious joy. Verses 20 to 23. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I think that's a pastor move, by the way, to end that verse Amen, and then have three other verses after it. You know, I'm landing the plane, not really. You know, anyway. (laughs) Um, As Paul closes here, it's very easy to overlook this last last bit he writes. It's just like a sign-off for him saying goodbye to his friends. I think there's something really neat to look at there. The greeting was from the brothers and sisters in Christ, but we hear especially those of Caesar's household. Who were those of Caesar's household? History would tell us they would have likely been those that were in governmental employ, slaves, praetorian guard. Paul would have come in contact with many of them. And it was clear, this is what's so great, it was clear that God was bringing some of these men and women to saving faith. Paul's own captors would hear the gospel and sit under its teaching. 
Ephesians tells us that believers were chosen in Christ before creation. God has eternally known who he would call to himself, be it Jew or Greek. The true gospel preached by Paul highlighted humanity's sinfulness and worthiness of eternal damnation. As sinners, we are enemies of God since the fall of Adam and Eve. But Christ humbled himself and took on flesh. He came to this world and lived a perfect and sinless life. Jesus was wrongfully accused. He was tried and he was executed by the people he'd come to redeem. He stood stood before God's judgment with the sin of the saved upon his shoulders. Because God is holy, he hates sin. So for the saved, Christ bore God's wrath to its completion for sins past, present, and future. Three days after his execution, Jesus rose from the grave conquering death and sin. He healed the enmity between humanity and God. There is no sin that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cover. And we do not always feel that way, but it's always true. When God looks at one of his children, he sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus. God's salvation cannot be earned, it cannot be deserved, and it cannot be lost. God is eternally faithful to redeem all his people. Paul opens this letter with a grace blessing, Philippians 1-2. And then he closes his letter with a grace blessing. This letter written by God through the hand of Paul, is saturated with grace from beginning to end. In chapter 1, verse 6, God promises to finish what he started. Chapter 2, verse 7, speaks of Christ humbly emptying himself. Chapter 3, verse 9, tells of the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Chapter 3, verse 20, reminds us that we are citizens of heaven. Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, proclaim God is a God who hears our prayers and gives us peace And today's passage states in chapter 4, verse 19, God is a God that faithfully supplies all of our needs and provides for us an audacious joy. Church, I'm going to have Maggie and the, the team come up now. And we're going to continue worship um, through singing. And... Um, I'm going to close with portions of a prayer written by author slash pastor Scott Smith. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, these verses are familiar, yet I can easily ignore the wonder of these words. First and foremost, I bless and adore you for being a father who will never fail or abandon his children. And secondly, for being a God who studies our needs and who answers those needs with riches, not pittance. 
You are so present and loving, kind and generous. Accordingly, Father, like Paul, I do want to learn more about contentment. For the more content I am, the more present I'll be in relationships, not stressing or even thinking about what I don't have. And the more generous I'll become, for I'll be quicker to acknowledge that everything I have, I received as a gift from you. And the more flexible and spontaneous I'll be in serving you. Not being defined by or anchored to my creature comforts. Father, growth in contentment is growth in grace. So expand the chambers of my heart to receive more of your grace. Rescue me from my pathetically small notions of your love and goodness. Free me from the stranglehold of my unbelief. Revealed in the fear I have and even praying for contentment. Liberate me for being not just satisfied in Christ, but overwhelmed, smitten, and in awe of every good thing you have given us in Jesus. Amen.